The interchange is brought to you by PG&E. PG&E is helping to electrify corporate fleet vehicles. And if you're a company or municipality and you want to electrify your fleets, get in touch with an EV specialist over at PG&E at pge.com forward slash GTM. This podcast is brought to you by Uplight. Uplight has a suite of software and engagement tools that deliver customer experiences like Amazon and Netflix. Utilities, if you need to up your game on customer experience and customer satisfaction, you should turn to Uplight. And if you want to learn more about Uplight's expanding services to help remake the utility-customer relationship, visit Uplight.com. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media. Welcome. And despite Shale's best attempts to replace me last week while I was away, I am your host. Shale Khan is out in Berkeley. He's the managing director at Energy Impact Partners, and he's back to his title of co-host. Hi, Shale. Welcome back, Stephen. How is basking in the glow of fatherhood? Parenthood is as fulfilling as they say it is, although... In preparation for this week's topic, I couldn't get my daughter excited about hedging strategies and fixed volume price swaps. Let's hope we can do better for our audience today. Uh, Well, I'm excited to have you back. I feel much more comfortable in this co-host chair. This week, we explore a possible ticking time bomb for renewable energy, merchant risk. Since the dawn of grid-connected wind and solar, long-term power purchase agreements were the financial glue that held these projects together. Project owners could rely on relatively simple multi-decade contracts, thanks in large part to policy that encouraged or mandated utilities to enter those agreements. Today, things are getting a lot more complicated. More and more wind and solar projects are getting exposed to the risks of the market. Contract terms are getting cut down to 10 years, even 7 years for some deals. And that means a vast majority of the electricity produced by a wind or solar project must get sold on the competitive market. Now, Shale, why is that a big deal? Why is this worth talking about? Sure. So, yeah, as you mentioned, the the short version of the history is basically this. The the first bunch of years when we were building wind and solar, um, pretty much every project that got built had a power purchase agreement, which was a an agreement by a utility exclusively to purchase all the power from that project at a fixed price, you know, measured in dollars per kilowatt hour. And those contracts were pretty much exclusively 20 years, sometimes even 25 years. So what you would do if you were a developer is you would get that contract in hand and then you would go finance the project off the back of that contract with certainty around how much you're going to get paid for all the power that you produce. And then the only question would be how much power will you produce? But I think three things have changed over the past few years. Um, The first is, as you mentioned, Power purchase agreement terms, PPA terms have gotten shorter. So as you mentioned, it goes from 20 years to sometimes 15 to 10 to even less than that. The second thing that's happened is that utilities are not the only buyers for the power from these projects anymore. We've had this growth of corporate renewables purchasing and corporates are not necessarily willing to bear the same risk that utilities are. So they sometimes put more of the risk back on the project. And the third thing that's happened is that, you know, PPA prices have gotten so competitive and so low that you can't necessarily finance a project based exclusively off of the revenue you're going to get from your PPA. It's just not enough. 
And so you need to underwrite to, you need to finance according to some assumptions around additional revenue that you're going to get beyond the PPA term after it expires, but while the project is still operating. Uh, and that means that the project in one way or another bears some risk in the market. So that's what's happening. The reason that I think it matters is that this is all happening at the same time that we have what looks like basically the most uncertainty that we've ever faced in the wholesale markets over the next couple of decades. We just don't know how these markets are going to adapt to this increasing penetration of renewables. One way that they might adapt is that prices might just plummet, right? And so you see this already in places that, for example, have a lot of wind. At the times when wind is generating a lot, the prices will go very low or even negative. You see this in California with, with solar as well. If that sustains for a long time, then these projects, um, once they start to come off of power purchase agreements in year 11 or 12 or whatever it might be, uh, maybe they're not going to get much revenue in the wholesale markets. And maybe that means that the investors who own the projects um, and were expecting to get that return won't get that return. And if that happens at scale, then that's the sort of ticking time bomb that you alluded to at the beginning. Possible that you could have an entire you know, years worth of renewables projects um, that got built right around now that end up being bad investments 10, 20 years from now. Uh, and then that raises the question about what the future of renewables will be at that point. So I think that's the reason that it's at least worth asking the question. So there's a lot on the line here. We were talking about the financial glue of the clean electricity transition, so very important. And with us to have that conversation is Christine Brzezinski. She is a senior associate at the global law firm Norton Rose Fulbright, and she has a lot of experience with these deals. She's represented lenders, sponsors, and risk managers on gigawatts of wind, solar, and gas deals worth billions of dollars. That includes the Block Island Wind Farm, America's first commercial offshore wind project, and a lot of other firsts. Christine, welcome. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me, Stephen and Shale. I saw in your bio that three deals you worked on, the Block Island Offshore Project, an onshore wind project in Kansas that used a creative uh, hedging structure, and a major gas project, all won awards in 2015 and 2016 for top deals of the year. The life of an energy lawyer sounds pretty glamorous. Are you just walking red carpets every month, picking up fancy awards for your work on proxy revenue <laughs> swaps and fixed volume hedges? I wish. I <laughs> wish. It's <laughs> a lot of hard work, but it's really great to see these projects get built once we've worked on them. Okay, so we invited you here to help us understand why and how merchant risk is going to shift how renewable electricity is bought and sold. Shale, what do you want to get out of this conversation? Yeah, I think we sort of have four fundamental questions here. The first is, how much risk does a new wind or solar project that's getting developed today actually bear? How, how much of this merchant risk is, is borne by the project? The second is, who, who really wears that risk? Um, you know, who at the end of the day is the one who's going to hurt if the revenue doesn't show up when it's supposed to? The third is, what are they doing to try to mitigate that risk? You know, you've mentioned a couple of times things like hedges and proxy revenue swaps. Like, how how available are those things to to mitigate the risk, um, and who's willing to offer them? And then the final question is, if it all does go wrong, what effect could that have on the future of the market? And basically, sort of at the at the highest level, is this something that could make a dent in renewables in the long term? So I guess, Christina, I'll, I'll start with the, the first question of sort of how much risk these projects bear, 
Walk us through maybe the prototypical wind or solar project today to the extent that there is one. What is the contract structured like? What type of a PPA is available? And how do they think about revenue within the PPA and outside of it? Each project, one of the first things they think about is how do I contract my revenues? And obviously, as you mentioned, the ideal is for a project to have a utility PPA in place. Those are fairly simple contracts. They're very easy to model. It's a fixed price per megawatt hour of power produced. Now, as you mentioned, those are really hard to get these days. So for projects that can't get a utility PPA, they need to look elsewhere to try to put a floor under their their revenues. And there's a couple different options out there. I would say the, the second most popular right now is the corporate PPA. Corporate PPAs were originally designed to look like traditional PPAs, but they've evolved over the past couple of years. So they're not necessarily as as good as traditional PPAs from the project company's perspective. For project companies that can't get corporate PPAs or traditional utility PPAs, then they're in the world of hedging and just looking at other ways to put a floor under their revenues. Can I stop you and ask, why are these corporate PPAs not seen as good? Yeah, well, there's a couple of different reasons. The first being that the typical corporate buyer does not want to bear the same risks as a utility. So as corporates have been getting more sophisticated, they've figured out how to shift some of these other risks back onto project companies. One of the the main concerns of project companies today that do not have traditional utility PPAs is something we call basis risk. Basis risk is the difference between the hub and the node. And I know that makes no sense, so let me back up and explain that. When projects sell power into the grid, the project connects to the grid at a point that we call the node. When a project sells power, they receive the nodal price. The nodal price can vary based on factors that aren't actually related to the market value of power. So, for example, if the grid is poorly constructed in that area and there's a lot of congestion and curtailment, the price of power will be affected by that. And because it's so region-specific and so difficult to predict that price, a lot of investors don't like taking price risk at the node. What they instead prefer is what we call the hub. The hub is designed to reflect the market price of power without these other factors like grid congestion. So purely, how does the market value power and what price do they put on that? When corporate off-takers enter into PPAs, they don't want to take nodal price risk. They instead want to settle at the hub. So basically, if I can summarize, the corporate purchasers want to buy at the hub price, the project has to sell at the nodal price, and that means that the project owner is the one who's bearing the risk that the nodal price goes a little crazy because of something like transmission congestion or whatever it might be, and they get less than they're getting paid um, at the hub price. And so that's just a, an example of a risk that a corporate off-taker is not willing to bear, but a utility would be. Exactly. Um, exactly. Separately, there's also this question of these contract terms, which I think is is going to be relevant when we start talking about sort of the long-term wholesale prices. You talk a little bit about you know the evolution from the standard 
20-year utility PPA to whatever we're facing today? Sure. So a lot of these contracts, as Shale mentioned earlier, are now around 10 to 12 years. That's considered standard for a corporate PPA. And a lot of these other hedging contracts as well have 10 to 12-year terms. The, from a project developer's perspective, their primary concern is to get a term that covers off their financing. So if they have a five-year or a construction financing that amortizes over five years, then they will be okay with a 10-year PPA. Same with a if they have a 10-year tax equity financing, typically a 10 to 12-year PPA will be okay. The problem is what happens when those financings go away? Then the project developer is left with this merchant risk and it's really difficult to, you know, predict how valuable this project is going to be starting 10 years out. So so now we're getting to it, which is who is it within this financing equation that is forced today to make some assumption about the revenue the project will be able to achieve in the open market in 10, 15, 20, 30 years after the PPA expires? Um, and has to get comfortable with that in order to finance the project in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's always the unfortunate truth is the equity, the project developer is always going to be stuck with that risk. Financing parties, they won't enter into a project unless they have a pretty good view on what the revenues will be. So once a developer hits year 10, that's always going to be their risk. And sometimes they might sell the project. Sometimes they might try to get a new PPA. I mean, there's ways to deal with the risk. But at the end of the day, that's something that the the developers typically stuck with. And does that end up accounting for a significant portion of the developer's expected revenue from the project? I mean, yes, that's, that's certainly true. For a lot of developers, they may even just have an exit strategy if they don't want to take a view on what those revenues will be, they may just decide, I'm just going to sell the project after year 10. But certainly for a 30-year project, it's very, very difficult to estimate what the revenues will be after those contracts expire. This podcast is brought to you by Uplight, a utility software and analytics leader that you once knew as Tendril and Simple Energy. That's right, Tendril recently made acquisitions of First Fuel and Energy Savvy and EEME, and then it merged with Simple Energy, and the result is Uplight. This is a company that now offers an end-to-end product for utility customer engagement. It transcends silos within power companies and helps improve interaction across every channel, program, and solution. This enables utilities to provide the personalized experiences that customers have now come to expect. Or if you want to learn more about Uplight, and what they're up to, it's uplight.com slash GTM to learn more. You know, corporate fleet vehicles are getting electrified at a pretty rapid pace. Electric buses are starting to take hold. Big corporations are recognizing that they have to make their vehicles electric. And PG&E is doing the best that it can to help electrify school buses and transit buses, delivery vehicles, all sorts of vehicles for municipalities and corporations. So if you're in California, you're in PG&E service territory, you can get the financial, logistical, and construction support for electrifying your fleet. 
Get in touch with one of PG&E's EV specialists to learn more at pge.com slash GTM. So I'm curious about the level of risk here compared to other resources that bid into the market on a merchant basis. I know that renewables have this sort of time dependency and seasonal dependency that makes it unique. Can we just take a step back and talk about why this risk is particularly acute for renewable energy compared to uh, other resources? Sure. Well, with intermittent resources, one of the primary problems, particularly in wind and solar, is that they all generate at the same time. So when the wind blows, all of the wind farms in a given area will come online at the same time. And that will depress the market price of power. So that's something that we call covariance risk. The other problem with that is that renewables can't bid into what we call capacity markets. So a capacity market is something you might find in, let's say, PJM, where they will actually pay projects to hold back a portion of their power. And then at a time when demand is incredibly high, these projects will be obligated to produce that last portion of their power to sell out onto the grid. And because with renewables projects, you can't predict when they're going to produce and when they're not going to produce, they really can't bid into any capacity markets. It's very risky. Right. And another way to talk about this this risk, this time dependency is, is, is calling is shape risk. And I like to think of it like this multidimensional game of chess. You know, you've got th- uh, a few things, as both of you have outlined, that influence the financial performance of a wind and solar project. You've got the volume, how much electricity is produced, price, how much you can get it for in the market, and then time, when you're selling that electricity. And because renewables are so time dependent, if you have to sell your electrons merchant style during the middle of the day, when every other solar project is dumping their electrons, you can encounter very low or even negative prices, and that's not good for the financials. As I understand it, the the net result of this is that if I'm a developer right now and I'm developing a wind or solar project, assuming that I can't get my, you know, the the 20-year utility PPA of my dreams, probably what I'm going to have to do in order to get my project constructed is I'm going to have to get whatever PPA I can, say it's a, a corporate purchaser who is willing to sign a 10-year contract. But then I'm not going to make any money during those 10 years. And what I have to assume is that after those 10 years come up and the project still has another 20 years or so of life, that there's going to be money there for me. But I know that I bear this shape risk, the covariance risk. I, I bear the risk that once the PPA expires, at some point, there's going to be a ton of wind. Say I'm building a wind project. There's going to be a ton of wind generating all at the same time right in the area where I built my projects. And thus the prices in the wholesale markets uh, are going to be zero or negative. And there will be certainly less revenue than I expected, if not zero revenue available to me. But I basically have to hold my nose and do it anyway, because it's sort of the only way I can get my project built. So if I'm a developer, is it basically a choice for me between don't do my project or do my project, but know that I there's a decent chance that when it comes time for me to earn most of my revenue after the financing is rolled off, it won't be there for me. Do developers sort of see it that way? They're between a rock and a hard place, but this is the only way to get the project done? Or do they think that the 
the revenue will be there for them when the PPA rolls off? I think that it is something they have to suck up and get done. The hope for a developer would be that they can contract out the or they can get a contract in place after their existing contract expires. So, you know, for example, they have a 10-year PPA, 12-year PPA. Once that PPA goes away, and assuming the developer no longer has to worry about their financing parties, they can kind of evaluate at that point, okay, are the merchant revenues high enough that I can go ahead and go forward with the merchant project and just take whatever comes my way? Or is it more effective for me to go out and try to get a new PPA in place? Right, which is also equally risky because who knows what PPA price they'll be able to attract at that point, given the state of the market at that point in time. Right, exactly. Let's just say there are three types of projects then. There's the utility, 20-year fixed-price PPA. That's the golden land, eminently financeable and uh, attractive to developers. Then kind of second to that is that corporate PPA, where it probably is riskier, both because it has a shorter term and because the off-taker, the corporate, won't bear all the risks that the utility would, as you mentioned, like the, the hub and node differential. Then there's a third category, which is the project that can't get the PPA in the first place. Um, and I think for a long time, that was just a non-starter. If you didn't have a PPA, you didn't have a project. But there have been mechanisms now developed so that you can get enough certainty, or as you said before, a floor, uh, that you can still develop projects even in the absence of PPAs. Maybe can you kind of walk us through at the highest level how that works? Sure. So there's two main types of hedges. The first is a fixed volume hedge, and the second is what we call a proxy revenue swap. So a fixed volume hedge is based on, as the name implies, fixed volumes. So unlike a utility PPA or even a corporate PPA, where the volumes are the same as what the project produces, in a fixed volume hedge, the hedge provider is saying, hey, we'll place a floor under your revenues, but only for certain amounts of power per hour. If you overproduce, that's on you. If you underproduce, you're going to have to make up that difference. But we're going to decide ahead of time what's going to be hedged. So a proxy revenue swap, on the other hand, is entered into by a weather risk investor. And this is someone who really wants to bet on the weather. And what they'll do is they'll agree to give the project company a fixed dollar amount every single quarter. And then if the revenue earned by the project company during that time exceeds that fixed amount, they'll go ahead and pay it to the weather risk investor. If, on the other hand, the volume of power produced or the revenues produced are less than that amount, then they're going to have that made up by the weather risk investor. So the weather risk investor is essentially covering off downside and then taking the upside. Which one's more common? Right now, the fixed volume hedges are much more common. And the reason for that is that there's a whole bunch of institutions that provide them. So there's only one weather risk investor right now that does proxy revenue swaps. So they're very in demand, but just not that common due to the fact that there's not that many people that offer them. On the other hand, with fixed volume swaps, there's a whole bunch of banks that offer them. Uh, Morgan Stanley, JP Morgan, Goldman Sachs. 
And there's also other companies that do them as well, trading companies like Shell will do them, BP will do them, a few other strategic investors. And what's typically the term on these? Like how, how you know, if I want to do a either a proxy revenue swap or a fixed volume hedge, can I do it for 10 years, 15 years? What's the longest I could get? Probably, I would say 12 years would be the absolute longest. Um, but again, it's it's the same trend as in PPAs. Hedge investors or hedge providers don't want to take this risk of power prices that far into the future. And the longer the term is, the more they're going to charge for that hedge. So if a project company can stomach a shorter term, they'll actually get a better price on the hedge. Do you see any of the developers stomaching a shorter term by making some assumptions about what they'll be able to do at the end of their hedge or the end of their PPA? You mentioned before that you know some of them think, well, maybe I'll just go out and get a new PPA at that point. Um, I've, I've heard a couple of developers also say, well, look, we could always retrofit and add energy storage so we could fix the shape if we have a shape problem 12 years in the future. Are, are the, is that stuff that they're just sort of hoping might be available to them or are they actually banking on it? Yeah, so developers really don't have a choice. Whether they're banking on one or whether, whether they're just crossing their fingers and hoping for one, I mean, it's the same outcome. And they really can't do anything more than what they're doing. The, the off-takers and the hedge providers in this market have a lot of power. So it's really difficult for developers to stand up and say, hey, I need more certainty. Because they're probably not going to get that. So that gets us to kind of my core question here, which is we have all these projects getting built today that I think kind of everybody recognizes at this point bear a huge risk come 10, 12 years from now, because who knows what's going to happen. Maybe it's possible that there's wholesale market reform and these projects actually become more valuable. Maybe it's possible that they all add storage and it doesn't matter. But it's also entirely possible that we just build a bunch more renewables, wholesale prices go to zero in all the locations where these projects are and there's no revenue available to them. And so if that happens in that the negative version of this story playing out, what then happens in 10 or 12 years? Are these developers who are building the projects now, are they still going to be around? Are they going to be the ones who who get hurt? Or is it going to be somebody else? Yeah, at the end of the day, it's really a developer risk. So in a terrible, you know, end end of the world scenario, they are the ones who will end up taking that hit. But, you know, there's different there's different options out there for them. For example, I think a lot of people are really focused on Texas right now. And Texas is a very windy state. There's a lot of wind down there. Um, and this is kind of where we're seeing these doomsday scenarios of negative pricing and congestion on the grid. Um, but there are other areas of the country where, you know, it's still relatively windy. It may not be Texas level windy, um, but, you know, there are options for developers who want to get out of Texas. So it really, developers will be stuck with the risk, but not everywhere in the country is the same as Texas. Well, I guess that brings me to an even more fundamental question, which is how likely is that scenario? And I know that it's hard to predict because it depends on variables that not a lot of people want to predict that far out. But uh, from what we know today, 
um, given the options that are out there in the market um, and how these projects are structured, how likely is the you know the doomsday scenario, the black sky scenario for a lot of developers? Hopefully not that likely. Uh, developers can are, are wising up to the different risks that they're facing and are getting contracts that more adequately match those risks. So we talked about hedging contracts. They're not ideal, but when done right, they can really help a project with a lot of these risks. And because hedge providers are entering into shorter contracts, you know, five to 10 year contracts, in five to 10 years, suddenly they're gonna have capacity to enter into new contracts. So, you know, the demand for energy is there, there is something to the fact that just because terms are shorter doesn't mean that nothing will be available later on. In fact, it's the opposite. A lot of these utilities, a lot of these corporates, a lot of these hedge providers, they will have need for power later on. So it's just uh, difficult for developers because they can't count on that. They can hope for that. They can't count on that. I'm, a, I'm slightly more skeptical. I, I think that there's, I mean, it's obviously location dependent and project dependent. I think there's a very real risk um, because it doesn't take that much really. We, you know, it just takes us continuing basically on the track that we are on today where we keep building more and more renewables in the areas that have good resources. Um, and, you know, if you do that, then as you said, because of the covariance risk, you know, it, you could just end up in a market where there's most of the the wind projects or solar projects that get built today end up with zero or negative pricing for good chunks of the year in in 12 years. Um, and these are 30-year assets. Now, you know, will there be zero revenue available to them? Maybe that's a pretty low risk, but it's sort of why I'm curious how they're thinking about it. Like, what is the what's the minimum threshold that they would make out not uh, losing their shirts on because it, it does seem to me like it is a is a pretty big risk. But then there's the the more fundamental question, which I, I made a point about this merchant risk um, thing a little while back on Twitter, and, and Jigger Shah made a fairly reasonable comment in response, which I'm curious to get your take on, Christine, which is effectively, I'll paraphrase him, so Jigger, I know you listen, yell at me over Twitter if I got this wrong, but basically it was sort of like, well, who cares? Like, let's just say that the black sky scenario happens and all these projects lose their shirts, right? And ultimately, they none of them are profitable for whoever is bearing that risk. At that point, should we care? You know, it, will it have any impact on the future of renewables? Well, <laughs> that's a little dark. I mean, listen, I think, <laughs> I think that as the country, the world is trending towards more renewables. And the bottom line is we have to figure out a way to make it work. And there's definite ways to do that. There's storage, there's grid infrastructure. These are developments that are in the works. They're not really fully baked yet, but at the end of the day, I have confidence that we'll get there because we have to get there. We can't be relying on coal anymore. We can't, you know, we can't be using these unclean sources of energy. And as more focus shifts towards renewables, I really do think, I hope, that people will find a way to make this work. So, you know, Texas, very isolated area. Part of the problem is you can't get renewable energy out of Texas that effectively. If we had better grid infrastructure, we could get the energy out of Texas into other areas of the country that are not as windy. That will improve the prices and that will make renewables more sustainable. 
the argument that I would make why we, we should care beyond just sort of not wanting a bunch of renewables developers to lose their shirts is it'll have a dampening effect on future development. If all of a sudden we have a whole raft of wind and solar projects in 2035, the, all of which are underwater, then I think it has some impact on the next wave of developers in 2035 who are going to want to be building new projects uh, and, and might be less likely to be able to get those financed. So that would be the argument for why it has a big societal impact beyond just, you know, there are a specific list of project owners who, who lose money on an investment. So the big question is, is there a tech solution to this? Because we've mostly been talking about financial engineering and the, the handful of solutions that are out there today. What about the use of the obvious technology, storage, um, to, to help alleviate some of this risk, to shift sale of electricity at a time when prices are higher, making project economics better. How are developers thinking about integrating storage or hybrid wind solar storage plants to try to create a technological hedge? Yeah, I think that that's something that's on a lot of developers' minds. Uh, the technology is still evolving. I don't know if it's quite there yet in a sustainable way, but it's, it's certainly getting there. Um, and the benefit to storage is that it alleviates a lot of this shape risk and the covariance risk that's really impacting renewables right now. So, you know, if developers can can store some of their solar energy and then release it into the grid at a time when the sun's not shining, they'll hopefully get a higher price for it and the grid will be more um, stable, really. So it's a win-win for everyone, and the hope is that the technology gets there. I think it's just, I really think it's a pure economic question. Like, I think that the technology, yes, it's, it's I guess, early, but it, the technology is straightforward. For the most part, you're looking at adding a lithium-ion battery, probably something like four-hour duration. Like, that's all relatively straightforward. I think it. so the economics are also relatively straightforward, which is how much ac- extra revenue can you gain, can you expect to gain from shifting the power from the time it's produced to the time when you want to send it into the grid? And uh, is the revenue that, that you expect to obtain higher than the cost of the storage? Uh, and I think the reality is today, given the cost of storage, it often isn't yet. And that's probably why you see a lot of these developers not including batteries yet. But I think a lot of them think, first of all, that they will in the future as the cost of storage comes down and as these problems become more stark. And two, I've, I have heard a few developers, as I mentioned before, say, well, look, after the PPA rolls off, if we have a worst case scenario and there's no revenue available when the sun is shining, then I'm going to add storage. And 12 years from now, who knows what the cost of a lithium ion battery is going to be. So it could be really cheap then to shift. So I, I think there's a lot of moving pieces here. But the, the challenge there is, you know, if they all do the same thing and they all shift power to the same times, that gets you a... It builds a bridge to get you further, um, but it doesn't entirely solve your problem. Okay, so let's wrap this up and think about how big this risk really is. So, Christine, on a risk scale from 1 to 10, how what, what number would you choose? 1 being low risk, 10 being high risk. What number would you choose um, when evaluating how serious merchant risk is for renewable energy developers? Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, I would say it really just depends on the risk appetite of the developer, but I would say a five. 
Um, it depends on where the developer is. It depends on, you know, their confidence in getting another contract. But it's it's certainly a risk. It's certainly a risk, and hopefully it will become less of a risk once we get more storage in play. Still plenty of developers out there willing to take the risk? Yeah, I think so. And I think maybe it's uh, just some optimism on their part. They're always thinking there's another contract around the corner. Um, I think a lot of them are still figuring out the risks on the existing contracts, so they may not totally be aware of the risk that they're taking on. But, you know, I it really it depends on where they are, too. Developers in Texas have a lot more of this risk than developers elsewhere. Shale, Christine's got a five on the table. What are you going to lay down? Uh, I think it's like an I think it's like an eight personally for developers. I, maybe I'll give two different numbers for different versions of that question. I think on a one to ten scale. Oh, well, quite a hedge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm going to hedge my answer. Um, this is a fixed volume hedge for my <laughs> risk adjusted score. I think it's a big risk for a developer. Like, I honestly think that um, for many of these projects, developers are just grinning and bearing it because it's the only way to get their job done. But the reality is there is a meaningful risk that they're not going to make money on the projects. Um, so I think it's a big, big risk for them. The My hedge is, I think that's a separate question from how big a risk is this for renewables writ large and the future thereof. And there, I think Jigger's got me partially convinced that, look, a bunch of projects might not have the revenue that they expected. That doesn't necessarily kill renewables for the long term, but I do think it'll have some some dampening effect on future development. So I give it an eight for developers and I give it like a four for kind of the big picture future renewables. Christine Brzezinski is a senior associate at the global law firm Norton Rose Fulbright. She joined us from her office in Manhattan. Christine, thank you so much for helping explain this. Sure. Thanks for having me. Shale Khan is my co-host and a managing director at Energy Impact Partners. Shale, we scratched your merchant itch. Are you satisfied? (laughs) Yes. Consider the itch scratched. We don't have to talk about it again for another year. (laughs) Well, if you're doing these deals and you want to respond or add to the conversation, the best place to do that is on Twitter. Shale's there. I'm there. The interchange is there. We want to hear from you. So respond to the topics. Um, We'd we'd love to hear about your experiences. You can, of course, find us anywhere you get your podcasts. And if you're someone who hasn't done their podcasting civic duty, please rate and review us on the platform of your choice. If it has a rating system, Apple being the most popular, it is a huge help to getting us new listeners. Thank you all so much for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey with Shale Khan. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. Green Tech Media.